Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The Bible says, when Jesus had spoken those words, he went forth with his disciples over the the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew this place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Father, we thank you for your word. And we do pray, Lord, that we would take it deep into our hearts. Let it find good, fertile ground and let it change our lives this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Christ's life, and especially his death and resurrection, has been interpreted in very different ways by many different people. In 1906, Albert Schweitzer published his landmark book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. In it, since Schweitzer concluded that Jesus was just a mere man who was dominated by the expectation of the coming of God's kingdom, and who finally, in desperation, tried to force its coming by seeking his own death. Schweitzer describes this in a famous quotation. He writes, There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on the last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. But it refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has instead destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of this one great, immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as a spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory, and that is his reign. To Albert Schweitzer, and tragically to all those who followed him, Jesus was a mistaken idealist, caught and crushed like a rag doll in the wheels of history, who died in confusion, despair, and rejection. We're going to learn this morning that nothing could be further from the truth. Look at verse 1 with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went away with his disciples across the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas, who was betraying him, also knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having obtained the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The private ministry of the Lord with his disciples has now ended, 
and the public drama of redemption is about to begin. Man will do his worst, and God will respond with his best, as we know that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We do need to realize there is a gap between verses 1 and 2 that is filled in by the accounts of the other Gospels. From there we understand that an unspeakable horror overcame Christ in Gethsemane as he wrestled in prayer with the reality of what was to come. So great was the agony as the coming dread engulfed him that he actually broke out into a bloody sweat. But here we find him walking across the ravine of the Kidron Valley, and this is also significant. The name Kidron means dusky or gloomy, referring to the dark waters that were often stained by the blood from the temple sacrifices, as at this time of the year, 200,000 lambs were being slain. So a drain ran down from the temple at the Kidron Ravine to drain away the blood. So when Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron, it was red with the blood of all those sacrifices. I wonder what the Lamb of God thought as he saw the blood of all those other lambs knowing that he was the ultimate and the final sacrifice. And the Kidron also had its special historical significance for King David also crossed that Kidron when he was rejected by his own nation and betrayed by his own son, Absalom. We're also told that there was a garden there. We know that human history began in a garden and the first sin of man was committed in a garden. A.W. Pink brilliantly draws the contrast out at some length. He writes, The entrance of Christ into the garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrasts between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve negotiated with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, the first Adam rebelled against the father's will. In Gethsemane, Jesus, the last Adam, submitted to the father's will. In Eden, Adam was full of joy. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Edom, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. In Eden, Adam hid from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus is transparent before God. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from the Father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. In Eden, the battle was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, Of those you have given me, I have not lost one. That was fabulous insight, I thought. We are told that Jesus and his disciples entered into a garden. History will one day also end in another garden, the heavenly city that John describes in Revelations 21 and 22. In that garden, there will be no more death and no more curse. 
As we said before, Adam blew it and became the first atom bomb. And we know that he blew it because he covered himself with fig leaves. I guess we could say that Adam wore the plants in the family. Anyway, the river of the water of life will flow ceaselessly, and the tree of life will produce bountiful fruit in that day. We could say that Eden was the garden of disobedience and sin, while Gethsemane was the garden of obedience and submission. And heaven is going to be that eternal garden of delight and satisfaction, all to the glory of God. That which was lost in the garden of Eden will be regained in the garden of paradise all because of the garden of Gethsemane. I notice another parallel here. Jesus has been rejected by his people and at that very moment was being betrayed by one of his own disciples. It's also interesting that David's treacherous counselor, Ahithophel, hanged himself. And David's treacherous son, Absalom, was caught in a tree and killed while hanging there. And Judas, of course, is also going to go out and hang himself. This same Judas has now arrived with a Roman cohort, priest, and a group of Pharisees. Now, a Roman cohort strength numbers somewhere between 600 to 1,000 men. It is unlikely, however, that a full cohort stationed at Jerusalem in order to keep peace during the Passover would have all been sent to arrest Jesus. Most likely, this was a smaller detachment known as a maniple, which consisted of about 200 men. In any case, enough of the soldiers from the cohort were sent to warrant their commanding officer to go with them. This isn't a Bible contradiction, though. John references the larger unit of which this detachment was just a part. It's just a figure of speech. In much the same way, when we say that the fire department put out the fire, doesn't mean that the entire fire department was involved. Regardless of the exact number, it was an extremely large group. Verse 4, please. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, came out into the open and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. Now then, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. He then asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are seeking me, let these men go on their way. This took place so that the word which he spoke would be fulfilled. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Now, John omits any reference of the kiss that Judas gave Jesus, which would have taken place at this juncture. And the reason is he is not concerned to tell us everything that happened, but rather to show Jesus complete control over the situation. Jesus knows that all these things are coming upon him, and in the light of that knowledge, he still goes out to meet those soldiers. And really, Jesus is not arrested at all. He has the initiative and gives himself up as the Lord had no intention of hiding or fleeing. Instead, with majestic calmness, absolute self-control, and supreme courage, Jesus, knowing all these things were coming upon him, went forth out of the garden and met those who were coming to arrest him. 
John notes that, that Jesus knew all these things were coming upon him. And that is to emphasize both his omniscience and his complete mastery of this entire situation. The Lord's voluntary surrender stresses again that he willingly laid down his life. Jesus asked, who are you guys looking for? To which they reply, Jesus of Nazareth, to which he replies, I am he. But that really isn't exactly what he said. In our translations, it says, I am he. But that's not what it says in the original text. The word he is not there. When they say we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus comes out and says, ego ami, which translated means I am. Now that may ring a bell in your biblical memory. In John 8, there's this astounding spot where Jesus' opponents are talking about Abraham. Jesus looks him straight in the eye and says, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham existed, I was, which would be amazing enough in itself. He says, before Abraham was, ego ami, I am. Just like it says here, I am. Jesus has taken the divine name upon himself. That is astonishing. What is a divine name? What does it mean? When God uses the verb to be without an object and says, I am, he's saying quite a lot. We almost never use the word to be without an object. So we say, I am this or I am that. We say, I am because, but God never does. God's name is, I just am. There's no beginning to me. There's no ending to me. And there's no because to me. I do not depend my being on anyone or anything. All things, all persons depend entirely every second and their being on me. That's a staggering statement. But what is really staggering, when a, live, when a living, breathing human being, Jesus Christ, takes that name upon himself. That's shocking. It was so shocking that when he said that, it says they all drew back and fell to the ground. What is going on here, we think? Now, of course, some people will try to take the supernatural element out of it by saying, Jesus' sudden appearance out of the shadows startled those in the front of the column, and they lurched back and knocked down the ones behind them, who in turn knocked down others, until finally the whole column went down. Kind of like a bunch of dominoes or a Three Stooges episode. But that's not what happened. It was a manifestation of divine power or an exhibition of the majesty of Jesus Christ. I personally think it was a fulfillment of Psalm 27, 2, which reads, When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to devour my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Alexander McLaren, a Scottish preacher, puts it like this. He says, I'm inclined to think that here there was for a moment a rending of the veil. And just as Moses could not look upon the face but only survived the merest glimpse of the back parts of his glory, and as Isaiah, who through the smoke and the merest glance of his majesty, said, Woe is me, for I am undone. So here, one stray beam, a manifest deity that shot through the crevice, as it were, for an instant was enough to devastate and prostrate with abject awe even those armed men. Through the Bible, you'll see that what we have here is an example of a very, very important teaching. 
And that is, nobody can stand on their feet in the presence of God. Everybody loses their footing. You can go back to Ezekiel 1 in the Old Testament. You see God appears and speaks to Ezekiel. He's not flat. You can go to 2 Chronicles 5. In 2 Chronicles 5, they just dedicated the temple. When they dedicated the temple, the Shekinah glory, it's called the Kabod, the Hebrew word for glory, the glory of God comes down and fills the temple. And we're told that the priests cannot stand to minister. What that means is literally they were knocked flat. They couldn't stand up. They felt like they had jelly instead of bones. When Peter realizes who Jesus is in Luke 5, after the great miraculous catch of fish, he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And he falls down to his feet. Over and over again, when people come into the presence of God, like Isaiah, who says, Woe to me, for I am undone, that literally means I am coming apart. Why? The whole idea is nobody can stand in the presence of God. So now here you have Jesus maybe just flexing a little bit. Before he gives himself up, before he lays his glory aside, before he goes to the cross, I think he shows them just for an instant who he really is. Even just that glimpse, just that beam as through the crevice was enough to knock an entire Roman legion flat on their backs. The result of that, verse 10, please. And Simon Peter, since he had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, am I not to drink it? Peter had earlier stated that he was ready to go into battle with the Lord and to give his life in that fight. And obviously, to his credit, he meant what he said. He was willing to wield a sword in order to protect Christ. One man with a sword against 200 armed men. That's Peter. Brash, impulsive, passionate, brave, but at this point still earthly-minded. Peter was a great fisherman, but a terrible swordsman. And you know he wasn't just trying to slice off Malchus here like some sort of Christian ninja. Now, I'm convinced he was trying to split him in half, but Malchus was smart enough to move. Not only that, Peter's sword symbolizes rebellion against the will of God. Peter should have known that Jesus would be arrested and that he would willingly surrender to his enemies since Jesus had told them that time and time again. So Peter here makes every mistake possible. He fought the wrong enemy. He used the wrong weapon. He had the wrong motive. And he accomplished the wrong result. He was openly resisting the will of God and hindering the work that Jesus has came to accomplish. You almost expect Jesus to say to Peter once again, get behind me, Satan, because you do not have the kingdom of God in mind. And while we admire his sincerity and his courage, it was certainly a demonstration of zeal without knowledge. He imitated the very enemies who came to arrest Jesus, for they too were armed with swords. Now Peter is later going to discover that the sword of the Spirit is God's weapon used in fighting spiritual battles. And later in the book of Acts, Peter would use that sword and 3,000 people would get saved. 
So why didn't Peter understand what was happening? Why didn't he see clearly that everything was transpiring according to pattern? Because as the other Gospels tell us, instead of praying, Peter had been sleeping. Consequently, Peter wakes up groggy, sees a battle, whips out his sword, and starts swinging it wildly. And by the way, that was the Lord's last public miracle before the cross, the healing of Malchus' ear. And what, what is that doing? It's fixing a problem that one of his disciples have created. So too. Many times as disciples, we can hurt people unnecessarily as we whip out the scripture indiscriminately and let them fly all the while thinking, others may be carnal and weak, Lord, but not me. You can count on me. I'll stand up for you. But like Peter, we can cause pain and hurt whenever our zeal is not based not only upon knowledge, that can only come through spending time in prayer. But can you imagine the pounding tension there as Malchus stood wide-eyed, blood pouring through his fingers, and a hundred steel blades ringing from their scabbards in what one commentator called a gruesome symphony. We are told in Luke that the Lord touched Malchus' ear and healed him. I don't miss this. I don't think Jesus picked up that severed ear off the ground, wiped the dirt off of it, and then reattached it back on Malchus like some sort of Mr. Potato Head thing. No, the language implies he touched where the old ear was and recreated a brand new one. This is a further display of Christ's divine power in a span of just a couple minutes. Now, upon seeing him create a new ear, the crowd should have fallen at his feet once again. But this time, they should have fallen down to worship him. In this last verse, Jesus speaks of the cup the Father gives me. It is one of the two cups that are spoken of in Scripture. One is the cup of salvation. It is mentioned in Psalm 116.13, which says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. The other cup is the cup of wrath or tribulation, which is referred to here. Earlier, Jesus had prayed that this cup might pass from him. Two cups, the cup of salvation and the cup of God's wrath. Did you know that every person who has ever lived is going to drink from one of those two cups? But those who drink of the cup of salvation by God's grace will only drink it once because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in their place. It's also interesting that both James and John asked one time if they could be seated next to Jesus when he got into heaven. Jesus simply asked them, can you drink the same cup I'm about to drink? To which they replied, yes. And they did as martyrs. James was the first to die by beheading, while John was the last to die in isolation. It's funny how God has different plans for us, isn't it? Also, we can't fully understand what drinking the cup of God's wrath for our sin really entailed. Imagine you're visiting the disease, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. You go into a large sealed room and see hundreds of beakers, which you are told contain the distillation of the germs, the bacteria, and the viruses from all the most dangerous diseases known to mankind. 
from the black plague to leprosy to cancer and AIDS and every foul disease that man has ever known. Then you see a technician who is one by one pouring all these cultures into one big beaker. Now in that beaker is the accumulation of all the daily diseases that has ever faced mankind. Would it not be our tendency to shrink back farther and farther from that horror, that beaker of death that stands before us? If you were asked to just touch it, you would recoil in terror. Should you be told that you must drink its contents, the most unimaginable dread and fear would fill your soul. Yet that is nothing compared to what Jesus saw that dark night in Gethsemane when he saw before him the cup that had all of the sins of the world in it. Or can you imagine being trapped in a small room with a dozen or more lepers all around you, reaching out and touching you and handling your hands and and breathing in your face? Once again, will you not just recoil in the utmost terror? For one who isn't a leper, it would be more horrible than we could possibly describe. However, if you were a leper, you would not recoil at all, as leprosy would simply be something you live with and handle daily. Likewise, we do not sufficiently recoil from the horror of sin because we are the sinners, and we live in the midst of it every day. It's touching us. We handle it daily. We participate in it sometimes joyfully. It is part of our daily lives. But that wasn't true for Jesus, the undefiled one, the pure one, the stainless one, the paragon of all virtue. What horror and dread must have filled his soul as he looked at that cup that was filled with sin. I read one commentator who said, I got a letter from the father of an eight-year-old daughter who has been diagnosed with a disease that is life-threatening and debilitating. He wrote, Every day I pray for her healing. Every day I pray to understand. Every day I ask God, God, will you make me sick instead of my little girl? Let me suffer. I'm so mad at God. I'm trying to hang on, but I'm so mad. Why is heaven silent on the one prayer I most want answered. You and I have been there, or someplace like it, or we will be sometime. I cannot point us this morning to an explanation that has all the answers because nobody has all the answers. I can only point us to a person. I can only tell us that at the heart of the gospel, there lies an unanswered prayer. Jesus kneeling in the garden praying, Father, if it is possible, may this cup, this suffering, this death be taken from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. That is the most desperate prayer ever prayed from the most righteous person that ever lived, from the purest heart that ever beat, for deliverance from the most unjust suffering ever known. And all it got was silence. Heaven was not moved. The cup was not taken from him. Their request was denied. The door remained closed. That kind of pain's hard to understand, isn't it? C.S. Lewis adds this comment. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common 
and also more hard to bear. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Sometimes, however, it persists, and the effect is devastating. I love that quote. In other words, it's hard enough to go to a dentist when I have a bad tooth. But where do I go with a broken heart? I suggest there's only one place we can go. We go to Jesus, the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief and understands our brokenness and pain. Pain has a way of turning us back to the Savior, and that also makes it essential for our growth and spiritual well-being. If you're feeling rejected, despised, forsaken, crushed, or afflicted, Jesus understands those feelings this morning. Helmut Felicki, a German pastor who played with the Germans to remain true to the cross and reject the swastika, wrote this. He said that Jesus rose up from the place where the kingdoms of this world shimmered before him, where crowns flashed and banners rustled and hosts of enthusiastic people were ready to acclaim him. And instead, he quietly walked away of poverty and suffering to the cross. One of the contrasts that Pink earlier in our sermon made is particularly suggestive here. For he points out that Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand, while in Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from the Father's hand. That leads me to state as a great biblical principle that it is always better to have the cup from God's hand, no matter what it contains, than anything else, however desirable, from the hand of another. Why is that? It is because of who God is. He is the wise, all-powerful, loving God of the universe, the one who truly always wishes our good, and in addition to that, knows what the good is and how to affect it. Now, others may wish us well or they may not, but even if they do, what they choose or recommend for us does not necessarily turn out to be beneficial all the time in the long run. This is the meaning of Gethsemane. Sin, death, and judgment flow from the act of Adam. Righteousness, life, and kingship flow from the cross of Christ. One man said it like this. The sin of Adam was a stone cast into a pool which sent ripples to every inlet. The cross of Christ was the rock of ages cast in the ocean of the love of God. And it is the destiny of all who are in Christ to be carried on the swell of his majestic love and life, both now and forevermore. Please get this. The greatest act of love ever accomplished was not accomplished with overwhelming emotions of warmth and fuzziness. It was doing the right thing only because the Father asked it. It was wanting to be anywhere but there, doing anything but that. Love most clearly shows itself when it acts against a person's emotions rather than in response to them. So as we finish today, Albert Schweitzer was wrong. Gethsemane was not a tragedy, and neither are our personal Gethsemanes. Now, this does not, of course, do away with the wounds and afflictions that we will get in life. But it is encouraging to see that behind every human tragedy stands the benevolent and wise purpose of the Lord of all of human history. Life may be dark at times. Tragedy may come. 
And at times the whole world may be seeming to fall apart. The will may appear ready to crush us. But this is not the end. For we are told that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Even in Gethsemane. Let us pray. And Father, we are thankful that, Lord Jesus, you took that cup for us. You took the cup of God's wrath and sin that we may take up the cup of salvation. We will be eternally grateful, O Lord, that we were able to do that. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone in this room or anyone who hears us on the Internet does not call you, that they would, Lord, give away the cup of wrath. They would push that away and grab the cup of salvation and drink it to its dregs. For, Lord, you are the only Savior of mankind. There is no plan B. Draw us to yourself. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.